Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am really thrilled to say we are joined by Nicole Perlroth. Nicole covers cybersecurity and digital espionage. It is as terrifying as it sounds for the New York Times. She has covered Russian hacks of nuclear plants, airports and elections, North Korea cyber attacks against movie studios, banks and hospitals, Iranian attacks on oil companies, banks and the Trump campaign and hundreds of Chinese cyber attacks, including a month long hack of the Times. Her first book, which I have been lucky enough to read, is called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. It is out this month. And welcome, Nicole. And thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks so much for having me. So this book is the history of cyber warfare. And it's something that I blissfully knew very little about. And now you have forced me to know what I can never forget. But mm-hmm. I, I I honestly want to recommend this to the listeners because the writing is just absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's a pleasure to read the book and it's something that we all need to know about. And I want to begin at the very beginning. Can you explain to us what zero days are? Um, yes. So first of all, let me just say thank you for, for the compliment. I, I really appreciate it. It's crazy spending seven years writing something when it's just you in a Word document and you never know how you're going to sound. <laughs> so every compliment um, that you just said was music to my, to my ears. Um, so a zero day is fundamentally, it's just a hole in software or hardware that uh, was not known to the manufacturer. So let's just stick with the most simple example. There might be a bug in your iPhone iOS software that Apple doesn't know about. You know, if Apple was going to know about it, it wouldn't be a zero day anymore. They would patch it and roll out a patch to customers and you would run your software updates and that would be that. But there's real espionage potential in these holes because if someone skilled enough to create the code to exploit those bugs can uh, do that, then they could use it for all kinds of purposes. They could access your phone's text messages. They could turn on your phone's camera without you knowing. They could record your conversations. And these are all capabilities that are in high demand from government agencies and law enforcement agencies. And because they provide a lot of espionage potential and surveillance for a lot of authoritarian governments out there. That's as scary an explanation as I anticipated, but it does remind me of, I teach a class called Privacy in the Media, and one of the things I say to my students over and over again is that technology advances faster than the law, faster than policy, Mm -hmm. and it changes our behavior basically before we can figure out how to catch up. And I was thinking about that as, as I was reading the book. Now, who is the world's biggest holder of zero days? Well, we used to be. We, the United States, saw very early on the potential of a zero day and zero day exploits. Zero day exploits are just the code to exploit the zero day. And uh, we started training hackers to find these bugs, to exploit them. We added them to stockpiles. And then we started paying hackers all over the world, not just in the United States, to hand over these zero days and not tell a soul about them because the minute you tell anyone about them, they get patched and fixed and lose their inherent value. 
for espionage. And so we, we were the biggest player in this market for a long time, but over the last 10 years, other governments, many of them in the Middle East, um, that worry about, you know, the next Arab spring coming, want to keep close tabs on activists and journalists and their Twitter critics have found that the best way to do that is to find a zero day in your iPhone software or Android phones and use it to spy on those people. And, and those stories have been coming out too over the last couple of years. I'm looking at my iPhone next to me as we're having this conversation with deep suspicion now. And I, mm-hmm. I expect after you're reading your book, I mean, it really was eye-opening in the sense that as somebody who teaches election law, I've been so worried about election hacks. And you really open this up, you know, explaining what zero days are, explaining that we used to hold them, explaining why uh, people are so secretive about them and why they're important. You've opened up a new world of insomnia for me. So I thank you for that. Now, you write about how we lost control of the stash and the market. And you just mentioned it a little bit, but could you walk us through a little bit more? How did that happen? It seemed like we were leaders. And then I was kind of picturing it like a, like a track and field race. And then we just, we lost it. We lost the baton. We fell behind. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Well, okay. So it dates back to the nineties. We really started hoarding these zero days And in the 90s, there was no harm, no foul, because Russia used different software than we used. China was using Huawei. Countries like Syria, Sudan, North Korea, Pakistan, they all used Huawei, and we all used Cisco routers. So if we found a zero day in Huawei, we didn't have a whole uh, lot of incentive to turn it over to Huawei, right? Because most Americans weren't using that software. What changed is that we all started using the same software. You know, we all use iPhones, we all use Android phones, Blackberries. Well, I don't know who still use a Black, uses a Blackberry, but <laughs> I hear there are still people out there who use it. So it created this moral hazard, which is if the U.S. government finds a zero day in your iPhone software, they have a decision to make. Do they keep it and use it to spy on terrorists or you know some of your adversarial governments? Or do they say, you know what, the chances of another government or a cyber criminal finding this zero day and using it on Americans is really high. We should turn this over to Apple so they can fix it and patch for it and roll out the software updates. And if you're listening to this, make sure you run your software updates when they become available. So um, what happened was... Uh, Starting around 2010, we discovered that the United States and Israel engaged in the most sophisticated cyber attack we've ever seen. They essentially used a string of seven zero days, some in Microsoft Windows software, some in Siemens industrial software, which is used in nuclear plants and power plants and water facilities and that kind of thing. And they use those zero days to essentially get into the computers that control the rotor speeds that spin Iran's uranium centrifuges. And in some cases, it was brilliant, but in some cases, they sped up the centrifuges and destroyed them that way. In some cases, they would slow them down and destroy them that way. 
And all the while, they also pulled off this sort of mission impossible hack where if you were an engineer in Iran sitting at the nuclear plant, staring at your screen, everything looked like it was going smoothly. But in the background, uh, we decimated some thousand of their uranium centrifuges. So short term, that was a huge success. You know, we set back their nuclear programs back years. We kept Israel from bombing Natanz, which every simulation the Pentagon had done showed that would trigger World War III. And arguably, we got Tehran to the negotiating table for the Iran nuclear deal. Long term, it's had huge blowback for the United States because that worm got out, that code seeped out of Natanz. We don't know how, but it did. It started infecting computers all over the world, including Chevron, you know, including American companies. And once that code got out, it allowed security researchers to dissect it. It allowed Iranian engineers to dissect it. And it really opened up the world's eyes to the potential, not just for espionage, but for destruction with code. So starting around 2010, every other government on the planet, with the exception of maybe Antarctica, started looking for zero days. And if they didn't have skilled hackers to do that, they found that they could buy their way into these capabilities by paying hackers all over the world, uh, you know, a million dollars. The current going rate for a zero day exploit for your iPhone, by the way, is two $2 million. Um, I've seen uh, Emirati Saudi brokers advertise $3 million. So, you know, hackers can make really good money um, selling, you know, a single zero day exploit or a string of zero day exploits that can get a government access to iPhone communications remotely. So that's been happening. And I was really focused on this moral hazard of, okay, if everyone is in the game now and we're all using the same technology, then has this shifted the United States calculus in terms of which zero days it will hoard and which it will turn over? What I never expected would happen in the course of writing this book is that the NSA's own stockpile of zero day exploits would get hacked and dumped online. And that is exactly what happened in 2016. Someone, we don't even know who they are, they called themselves the shadow brokers on Twitter, started leaking out the NSA's most premier hacking tools. And they did this over a series of months between 2016 and 2017. Now, I should pause here and say this is one of the biggest counterintelligence failures we have ever seen, but I don't think the public really grasped the gravity of it all because, again, this was 2016. You know, we were all focused on the election, um, on Russian interference, on Trump and the new administration and the Muslim ban. So we weren't really paying attention. But in my mind, what I was watching was way worse than the Snowden leaks. You know, Snowden leaked PowerPoint slides and an internal wiki and some memos at the NSA. And, you know, diplomatically, it was a disaster to find out that the NSA had been hacking Angela Merkel's cell phone. But with the shadow brokers leak was the actual code, the capabilities themselves. And so in 2017, the shadow brokers, again, we still don't know who they are, dumped one of the NSA's best tools, which was called Eternal Blue. It exploited Microsoft Windows software and essentially allowed these government agencies to spy on systems and crawl through their networks in an automated way instead of having to go manually server to server. Um, and the NSA, I learned, had held on to this vulnerability in Microsoft Windows for, for more than five years. It was netting some of the best intelligence that they got. Um, 
but they also knew that in the wrong hands, it could be really dangerous. And one of them likened it to fishing with dynamite. And once that was dumped online, North Korea picked it up for a giant ransomware attack that took out uh, hospitals in the UK. And when I say took out, mean decimated their IT systems and patient records. And they had to turn people away from the emergency room and cancel operations, that kind of thing. And they had made some mistakes in their code. So it was neutralized pretty quickly. But one month later, Russia used the NSA's tools to pull off a much more sophisticated attack where they didn't make the same sloppy mistakes. And that attack called NotPetya is to date the most destructive, costly cyber attack we've ever seen. It caused $400 million in damage at FedEx. It hit Pfizer. It hit uh, chocolate factories in Tasmania. It took out the radiation monitoring computers at Chernobyl, the old nuclear site. So they had to send people out by hand, these handheld radiation monitors. And probably most, most famously, it hit Maersk, the Danish shipping company. So it halted shipments, global shipments. And Merck, actually, it disrupted their vaccine production lines. And that year, 2017, Merck actually had to tap into the CDC's emergency supplies of Gardasil because its vaccine supply had been wiped out. So I don't have to tell you what a cyber attack that looks like that and hit Merck or, you know, more likely Pfizer or Moderna right now would do for our COVID response. So these attacks keep getting you know, more and more deadly than the last. But you know, to your point about losing our lead, the United States, no one has pulled off the kind of cyber attack that we pulled off on Natanz in Iran. We remain the world's top cyber superpower. But the point I wanted to hit home in this book was offense has not kept us safe. We are the most targeted nation state in the world because cyber criminals and nation states see we have these systems of interest. And we are also among the most vulnerable because we are the most digitized. We bought into this Silicon Valley promise of a frictionless society where we had access to anything we wanted, whether that was Uber or water treatment facilities, where we now have remote access to monitor the chemical levels in the water. And all of those access points can be exploited by hackers and increasingly are being exploited by hackers. You know, listening to you talk about this, it reads like you're describing an amazing work of fiction. I mean, it's trite because I think so many of the reviews have talked about this, that, you know, it's a page turner, it's a thriller, but it's everybody's saying that because it's true. And then stopping to think about the fact that no, it's all nonfiction. Mm -hmm. This is really happening. really is extraordinary. And I, I know we have limited time with you. So I want to turn to something that I'm really curious about, which is you're an expert in this field and you talk about, you know, votes going missing, clean water plants being contaminated, nuclear plants melting. We just talked about the disruption that could occur when it comes to life-saving vaccine distribution. Do you have a kind of top two things that short-term you're worried about or we should be turning to and paying more attention to? Uh, well, thank you on the fiction compliment. I mean, sometimes I had to 
like stop and pause these interviews and think like, is this person just lying to me or is this real? And there were a lot of stories I didn't include in the book because I couldn't find a second or third person to back it up, which is no surprise because a lot of these, you know, deals for zero days and stuff are wrapped up in non-disclosure agreements and increasingly are classified. But yeah, I mean, this is really a space where the truth is stranger than fiction. And I wrote the book in a thriller way because I did want to shake people out of their complacency. You know, I co- I've covered every story for the most part that is in the book on the front pages of the New York Times, but until they were sort of strung together in an accessible narrative, I didn't think people would really wake up and realize where we are and just how precarious this place is, which sort of brings me to your question. I mean, Always, always, always when I'm writing for the New York Times about the threat of cyber attacks to critical infrastructure, the one that just freaked me out the most was a hack of our water treatment facilities because I don't think people fundamentally grasped what could be done with a water treatment facility hack. And unlike a hack of the grid or power plant, it's almost like the silent killer because what's happening is people have set up their water treatment facilities and wastewater treatment plants to um, give contractors or supervisors remote access to monitor the level of chemical in the water. And on Friday, last Friday, just ahead of the Super Bowl in Tampa, we found out that a hacker got into those controls remotely. You know, someone just happened to be sitting at their computer screen and saw their cursor moving around And didn't even think anything of it because it was not unusual for supervisors to remote into their systems. But five hours later, they saw that same cursor move over to the functions that controlled the chemical levels in these plants and the drinking supply and up the level of lye, L-Y-E, from 100 parts per million to 11,000 parts per million. And had that engineer not seen it in real time, had they not caught it, um, There might have been sensors down the road that prevented that contaminated water from getting into the drinking supply. But can you imagine if those things had not picked it up and 15,000 people outside Tampa went to the hospital at the same time because they'd been poisoned, you know, when hospitals are already under siege from the pandemic. So I've always worried about the water treatment supply. And another thing about them is, you know, they're owned and operated by these small municipalities in a lot of cases that just don't have the security staff and resources and budgets of, say, a PG&E, which has pretty complex security protocols in place. And so they, they're they really ripe target for someone looking to essentially pull off a bioterrorist attack. Uh, you know, the other attack that comes up is an attack several years ago where we caught Iranian hackers mucking around in the controls of a dam. It was the Bowman Avenue Dam. And um, I learned and, and detailed this in the book that Michael Daniel, who was then the cybersecurity coordinator under the Obama administration, got the proverbial 3 a.m. call from John Brennan, then CIA director, saying, like screaming, you know, John Brennan's a pretty measured character if you've seen him on television, but, you know, basically screaming that Iran, I don't know if we knew it was Iran at the time, but hackers were inside the Bowman Dam. And it turns out we have two Bowman Dams. One is in Oregon and holds back a huge amount of water. And had hackers gotten into those controls, unlocked the gates, um, you know, we could have been looking at a really devastating kind of cyber tsunami for everyone living downstream of the dam. 
Fortunately, Iran's hackers got into the Bowman Avenue Dam, which is just outside Manhattan, and there's barely any water um, that that dam was holding back. It was actually under repair at the time. But we keep having these close calls. Um, You know, had he been in the other Bowman Dam, things might have been very different. Uh, Had this engineer not been sitting at his computer screen and seeing his mouse cursor move around, things could have been very different. So you know, the, the point of getting this book out now, and I it did take me a long time, was let's not wait for that world-ending attack. You know, it's not going to end the world, but it's going to shut off power. It's going to make hospitals inaccessible. It's going to contaminate our drinking supply. Let's get ahead of it. And getting ahead of it is really hard. It's like climate change. It's going to entail a collective choice by individuals, by businesses, by government. And so, you know, hopefully this is kind of the wake-up call. Well, so this actually brings me to my second to last question. So again, we're talking with Nicole about her first book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. I really recommend it, not necessarily the way I read it in the middle of the night, but I really recommend it. And it does feel, I mean, you just detailed these examples. It does feel like, you know, there for the grace of many lucky moments go we. And and you started to talk about things that we can do. Are there, you know, you say we're in a global cyber arms race, which I had never thought about, which makes me feel so silly to have never thought about it, but certainly we are. And then you write that we need red lines. We need to agree Mm -hmm. on a set of targets that are off limit, Mm -hmm. hospitals, Mm -hmm. election infrastructure, airplanes, Mm -hmm. nuclear Mm -hmm. facilities. Are there how do we accomplish that? How do we mm-hmm. specifically go from where we are today to some of the recommendations that you have about these red lines? It's a really good question, and it's a really hard question. Um, Russia has even proposed kind of a digital arms treaty. This is something that Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, has been talking about a lot. And uh, I do think that we do we, we need red lines. You should not we, we should hospitals should not be subject to cyber attacks without serious repercussions. Um, our election should not be subject to cyber attacks without serious repercussions. And we've really struggled in the United States on how to respond to these attacks. Um, most of the time we respond with sanctions or indictments that go nowhere um, because, you know, countries like China and Russia don't extradite their army officials to the United States for trial. Um, Sometimes we get lucky and a Russian hacker will travel to the Maldives um, and we'll be able to extradite them then. But, you know, they've gotten a little bit choicier about where they're going on vacation these days. Um, And that therein lies the struggle. You know, in the United States, when we conduct a cyber attack, it happens from inside the Pentagon at the Pentagon Cyber Command. Um, the espionage takes place you know, from the NSA, but these other countries, when they do cyber attacks, they might do it, you know, from their own servers. But a lot of times, China outsources some of its most sophisticated hacks to contractors. Um, some of the most sophisticated attacks we've seen from China come not directly from the Ministry of State Security, but from outside contractors. And sometimes these are top-tier security engineers at companies like Tencent um, or at Chinese universities who get tapped on the shoulder to essentially moonlight for the government. In Russia, it's similar but a little different. 
the relationship between the state and cyber criminals has been known for a long time. It's pretty murky, but in some of the most high profile attacks, like an attack on Yahoo a couple of years ago, when they finally nailed the attribution for that cyber attack, they found it was essentially four guys. Two of them were cyber criminals that did most of the dirty work. And then when they found an email account of interest, like someone who worked at the White House, they would pass that off to um, the FSB, the, the successor to the KGB, who would mine it for espionage. So how do you create these international norms in cyber when you're dealing with code that moves invisibly and is hard to detect and hard to attribute when these other states uh, maintain such a large degree of plausible deniability you know, that they outsource these attacks where we don't do that. We don't go, you know, tap an engineer at Google on the, on the shoulder and say tonight you're, you're coming with us. Um, Mm -hmm. We just don't do that. So how do you create rules when you're on such an asymmetrical playing field? So yes, we need red lines, but it is much, it's going to be much harder to enforce in practice. And it's not something the United States um, is ever prepared to do because they feel like it would just handcuff their own operations and their own ability to respond. That's a great and complicated answer to an extremely complicated (laughs) question. And I mean, how do we tackle this is true in so many different arenas. And I appreciate in the book that you, you're exactly right. It couldn't just be one article here and there. It had to be it all strung together. And you have a, I mean, you have a great title for, what we're thinking about. This is how they tell me the world ends. And now the last question is something that I hadn't planned to ask you about, but we we uh, texted about this a little bit. <laughs> what is it like to be a female journalist in this area? Or I should say the last question before I ask my last questions. Okay. Um, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard. You, first of all, you know, I write for the New York Times and I wrote this book for my mom. Like I wanted my mom to understand what I've been covering for the last decade. Uh, I did not write this for the technical community. And so what that means is I had to dumb down a lot of the language and definitions for things like a zero-day exploit. And what that means is you're you're talking about something that um, is inevitably going to be criticized by the hypercritical information security technology crowd you know, I sometimes joke, I would love to just go out to lunch with our reporter who covers the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and see who gets more abuse on Twitter. <laughs> because these people are Ugh. hypercritical. They have big egos. They bruise easily. Um, I am a woman. And, you know, we do see constant um, trolling of female journalists in particular on Twitter. And it does get very abusive. You know, there have been a couple times where I've just crawled up into the fetal position. And my husband, who was not on Twitter for a long time, was like, what are you, why are you so affected? But it gets so heated sometimes and so patronizing. And there are always these undertones of misogyny to a lot of the criticisms that it can be really hard. But um, you know what I do is I watch Moneyball. I watch this clip from Moneyball that is so helpful. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen it, but at the end of Moneyball, Brad Pitt gets this offer to go be the general manager for the Red Sox. And he just lost the World Series. And the owner of the Red Sox basically gives him the best pep talk of all time. And he just says, anytime you are doing anything 
that threatens people's livelihoods, that threatens the way they do business, they go ape crazy. And that is exactly what has happened with this book. The people who have gone ape crazy are actually the people who have profited off the zero day market and off the cyber arms race for a long time. And we have sort of let these people, because they're very loud on Twitter, lead these discussions. But what I learned in researching the book was these people in public have been essentially saying, we don't need any regulation in this space. Regulation is dumb. If you find a zero-day exploit, it's just as useful for defense as it is for offense. And there should be no rules that impede us from sharing that information with others, including other governments, even if they're NATO allies. But what I discovered was on the sly, these are the same people who have been training the Turkish military in this tradecraft. And all you had to do was go out there and look at what Erdogan's thugs were doing on their visit to Washington when they were beating up people on the lawn, you know, in clear view um, to know how those people would use zero days and tradecraft. They would use it to spy on their own people. And so I think, you know, in revealing that, um, I've I've made I've sort of kicked the 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 wasp nest, but it's important to me that people understand that we should not be outsourcing these discussions to people who have the most to lose by setting new norms and regulations for this market. So to be expected, but it's you know it's still hard. I appreciate that answer very much. It's really hard. I mean, I get it on a much, much smaller scale. And it's funny, I have a song instead of a movie clip, I have a song that I basically play to try and get myself out of uh, either literal or figurative uh, fetal position. And I thank you for- What is it? uh, It is called, um, they actually showed the song in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary and it's by Dessa and it's called The Bullpen. And the line is, uh, there's a China doll in the bullpen. And um, it's great because I remember who I I was able to go to a screening of the documentary um, and I- I remember how they first played it and that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's about my height, and I don't have any illusions that I compare the two of us in any way other than height, um, is <laughs> is doing so much amazing work um, uh-huh. with the power of the pen and a very, very small uh, tonal voice. Uh-huh. And um, uh-huh. so I, 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 sadly, I, I think, um, over the last four years, I probably played this song more than, or the last few years at least. Um, but- Minus, by the way, the song I listened to also after Moneyball, if it doesn't do the trick, is Yoshime, the Flaming Lips song. Um, yes. Yeah, it's such a good one for Twitter fights, <laughs> Twitter so, harassment. Um, so one time when we move from being terrified about COVID to being more terrified about uh, the cybersecurity, then we will listen to those songs, I hope, one time together in person. Ooh, um, yes. Yes. Now, uh, trying to be mindful of your time, uh, listeners know that I always end the podcast by asking my guests the same three questions. I'll ask them very quickly. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party? Nora Ephron, for sure. Oh, such a good... <laughs> I know. I'm First of all, she's a great cook. Yes. Um, 
there's Sam Sifton, the food critic of the New York Times, has a beautiful article about a time she invited him over for dinner. And he tried to make this meatloaf because she was famous for her meatloaf and put pancetta inside it. But he forgot to remove the plastic wrapper before chopping up the pancetta. So there was all this burnt <laughs> plastic in it. And it just like, I just, I just love her. And one of the reasons I love her so much is because she was this famous journalist, but she never lost her voice and she never let it dumb down the, you know, her personality quirks. And she was so disarming and so authentic. And I thought about her a lot in writing this book because I wanted it to be so accessible. And I didn't, I wanted to be a narrator and hold the reader's hand at certain points. And I didn't want to be this know-it-all. I just wanted to be myself. And so I would just try and channel her a lot. I miss her voice. And the book is relatable. It's relatable from the very beginning when you talk about being interviewed by the New York Times and you think, well, I'm so glad that, you know, I'll be able to say one day I was interviewed by the New York Mm -hmm. Times and then you get the job. And I think so, so many of us have been lucky enough to be in that position where you think, I not only got to talk to the person, now I get to work with that person Mm -hmm. or I get to work at this place. And Mm -hmm. I miss Nora's voice. And I read that piece and it is so relatable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, Staying on the food theme, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. Um, Bucatini. I never pronounce it right. What is it? Bucatini Amatriciana. There was this great story, by the way, recently about Bucatini. Like there's a huge Bucatini shortage in the pandemic, which is one of my favorite stories recently. But yes, Bucatini. And finally, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it? Uh, I think about this one a lot because of that This American Life about would you rather fly or be invisible. So obviously, invisibility would be a huge asset for me as a journalist, and it would be really hard to turn down. But I think flying, I think I would just choose flying. It just sounds so awesome. You know, we get that answer a lot, and it makes me think that we must all feel so tied down and trapped Mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, especially right now, it would just be so awesome to go fly around. Can you imagine? Oh. I can actually imagine. Nicole, thank you for passing judgment with us. This was awesome. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to eat our bucatini and watch Moneyball and listen to Dessa and listen to Flaming Lips and just veg out together. We have a plan. You can find Nicole on Twitter at Nicole Pearlroth. You can find her best book everywhere that books are sold. This is how they tell me the world ends. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. I had a great time with this interview, and I wish all the listeners a good day. Mm-hmm.